Good morning. If you can turn to Mark chapter 3 in your Bibles, we're going to continue our look at this gospel. Mark chapter 3. I'm going to read from verses 20 down to the end of the chapter. Mark 3, 20 to the end of the chapter. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem And he called them to him and said in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege, as has already been mentioned, to gather and hear your word. Would you do your work through your word, by your spirit? Father, help us to see you more clearly. Help us to lift up the name of Jesus more fully. Help us to acknowledge more the work of your spirit in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was in primary school, we took a school tour to a place called Great Explorations. It was this kid's museum, you know, kind of a takeoff, I guess, of great exploration or great expectation. And uh, one of the things that was there, one of the, the exhibits there was something called a touch tunnel. So it was this 100-foot tunnel that you would crawl through, but it was completely dark in that tunnel. So you started at one end and you kind of went through these flaps and then you had to work your way crawling through this 100-foot tunnel to the end. Then there were obstacles along the way, you know, and you, know, you had to make little turns here and there. Uh, the problem is, right, with primary school students is that you can be afraid of the dark. I'd say that adults can be afraid of the dark, too, every once in a while. And so if you needed, if you really needed light, you could cry out. They were listening, and you could cry out, like, I need the light! And someone would flip the switch, and the lights would come on for a second. You know, you kind of get sorted, and then 
They turn them off and you can't kind of keep, keep going. That experience for me in primary school reminds me of this passage in Mark 3. And so what you have here in this text, is we're going to see it several times in Mark, it's called a Markin sandwich. And so you think of a sandwich, and you have the bread, and then you've got the filling. And so what Mark does here is he starts with bread, and he moves to filling, and he gets back to bread. And so let's, let's look at it real quick. So you've, you've got the first part of the bread, the first layer of bread in verse 20. The crowds gathering there's many of them, so many that like, Jesus can't even eat. And then Jesus' family, they, they try to seize him because they actually think he's kind of out of his mind. And that same word for seize is, is a word later we'll see for, for arrest. They, they wanted to take control of him. That's the first layer of bread in this Mark and sandwich. So you've got this layer of bread. And then what Mark does is he, he, he kind of shifts away from the bread for a second and goes to the filling. And so the filling there starts in verses 22 to 30. The leaders of Jerusalem are, are saying uh, that Jesus' power to cast out demons comes from Satan. Jesus challenges this assumption, right, discussing the insanity that like a kingdom divided against itself is not going to stand. Then Jesus speaks of, of sins forgiven. Uh, that's kind of... Uh, uh, and then he, he mentions the sin against the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven. And then he moves to the, the last part of the sandwich, the other, the other layer of bread. Uh, and so that he finishes the story by returning to kind of his response to his family uh, there in, uh, in verse 31. And so he, he responds to his family and he gives this, this new definition, really, of what family looks like. So we've got these two stories, and you're like, well, why would Mark do this? Why would you interrupt yourself, throw this filling in, and then finish the story later? Well, he does this, it's, it's, a, it's like a literary device. He's doing it to show us a point. So these two stories have a similar point. And really, both knowingly rejecting the truth, like you see these religious leaders do, and ignorantly rejecting the truth as his family is actually doing, those both have eternal consequences. Ignorantly rejecting the truth or knowingly rejecting the truth. They both keep you from the family of God. And so just like these people 2,000 years ago could actually have their sins forgiven and be a part of God's family, we too, we can partake in that. And so I, I want you to be assured today, I want us to be assured today of our place and the family of God. Because you have to ask yourself, yourself the question, are, are you knowingly or ignorantly rejecting Jesus? That's a valid question. That's a good question that we hope everybody asks at some point. Uh, I want to show you two responses that the true family of God have towards the person and work of Jesus. Two responses that a true, the true family of God has towards the person and work of Jesus. Uh, the first point is that the family of God believes that Jesus has bound Satan and offers forgiveness of sins. And so we're going to go into the filling of the sandwich first, and then we're going to look at the bread. H have you ever convinced yourself that something was true when it wasn't? Just really wanted it to be true, but it's not? It's kind of hard to know, because if you've convinced yourself it's true, why would you think otherwise? 
That's kind of how conspiracies often work. You know, did you, did you know that there's people that actually believe the earth is flat? And I don't, I don't mean people 500 years ago. I mean like today. Today there are people who think the earth is flat. They think the North Pole is at the center and that their Antarctica is this, this ring of ice around the edge. And that is what our world looks like. Despite all the evidence that you could possibly give them, they don't want to believe that the earth is round. It's kind of hard to debate people who believe in conspiracies. It's as if they're like not really interested in the truth, but more about just kind of perpetuating what they believe. It's as if they're blind and don't want anyone to turn on the lights, like in the tunnel in my primary school days. We see a similar pattern here in Mark, but with much more horrible consequences than just thinking that the earth is flat or bumping your head in a tunnel. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the, 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 the ones of that day that were supposed to be the religious people, they were against Jesus really from the beginning of his ministry. Throughout the entirety of this gospel, the religious leaders reject. They question and question and question over and over and over again, despite truth staring them in the face. They don't really want answers. They want to trap him. You see it over and over again. Every time you read all the Gospels, the leaders wanted to trap him. They wanted to prove him wrong. And here in Mark 3, these scribes accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub. Uh, basically, Satan himself. They're saying, you're doing this because of the work of Satan. You're casting out demons from the work of Satan. Uh, Matthew and Luke's account of this, this very event, Jesus had, had actually just cast out a demon. Uh, Mark's a little bit more concise, uh, but we've seen Jesus cast out demons already. Uh, and so, you know, you, you still get the same idea. They're, they're, they're accusing all this power that Jesus is displaying as being evil. They're calling good evil. Jesus responds by telling this, this parable, right? The parable is just a, a story that has one, one kind of little nugget of truth. So in verses 23 to 26, <clears throat> Jesus tells this, this story. And he asks the question, how can Satan ca cast out Satan? How can he do that? He reveals the complete absurd, it's completely absurd to think that Satan would be casting out Satan. Na nations don't encourage friendly fire. That's not what they're doing. Rugby teams don't tackle their own players. That's not how they win. Those are surefire ways to lose a battle. But, in verse, but it's really verse 29 that most people tend to remember from, from this passage. Let's look at verse 29 real quick. It's kind of what, it's, it's where the question marks just go off in our mind. Because Jesus says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. So we can think about uh, the story of the absurdity, and then it kind of goes right into this, this statement here. I think it's firstly important to ask, well, what's blasphemy? What does it mean to, to blaspheme? I think a simple definition is that it's to speak irreverently or in an insulting way or in an unholy way about God. It's when people use the Lord's name in vain would be another way, I think, of an uh, example of blasphemy. Speaking ill of the Lord. But Jesus is referring here specifically to committing this sin 
against the Holy Spirit. And he calls it an eternal sin. So this would be a sin that would carry, you'd carry with you for eternity, a sin that cannot be forgiven. That is extremely weighty. Something that will never be forgiven. So what is this eternal sin that, that Jesus that speaks of here? There's several interpretations through the centuries. I want us to look at a couple, and I just want to narrow down on what we, we would think be the most, most likely, most biblical view of this. And this is the benefit, by the way, of going verse by verse through the Bible. You can't avoid some of these hard things because you just kind of get to it and you just kind of have to deal with it. Because uh, it is, it's a, tricky, it's a tricky section. One of, the, one of the views would have been that it's just a really bad sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a really bad sin. Murder, suicide, denying the Lord would be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is it doesn't fit the context. That's not what's happening in this scene. And, and we know people like David. King David murdered, and yet he was in the family of God. Uh, Peter denied the Lord, and he was in the family of God. And so it it's, doesn't fit that this would be some eternal sin because we know that people that, that committed big sins are still in the family of God. They can be because they can be forgiven. So it doesn't make sense that it's just a really big sin that can't be forgiven. Some people have thought that it means affirming what is not true about the Holy Spirit. However, there's been many unbelievers before they come to Christ that would express things about the Holy Spirit that would be completely wrong, and yet they still come to Christ. But there's actually believers that would probably express things about the Holy Spirit that are incorrect, and yet they're still in the family of God, and they're not damned forever. So that doesn't fit the context either. It's not just speaking something incorrectly about the Holy Spirit. That's not blaspheming this Holy Spirit. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's too general of an idea. So what seems to be the most faithful biblical understanding of this eternal sin is when someone decisively rejects what is made clear about Jesus and says that it actually comes from the devil. As one author put pretty clearly, he says, this is defiance of what one knows beyond any shadow of a doubt to be true. It is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. It's, it's knowing with certainty that the lights in the tunnel will help and are good, and choosing to reject the help that those lights would bring, and claiming that those with the power over the switches of those lights are actually evil and against you. That's what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is like. You see, verse 30, if you look at verse 30, you see that word for, and we see what Mark tells us. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They were saying that this good was evil. It's like what Flo was reading from Isaiah. And the Lord's anger is kindled against them. So, but why is it unforgivable? Why, why would that specific thing be unforgivable? It's not because there's some problem with the atoning work of Jesus. It isn't as if the cross can't cover it. The cross can cover sin. It's not because God somehow is limited in His grace or His love or His mercy. And He's not willing to extend mercy or love. That's not the problem. That's not why it's unforgivable. 
It's unforgivable, unforgivable because it's a sin from which you cannot repent. You can't repent from blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Repentance, if you remember, one definition, it's turning from your dependence on you and your resources to utter dependence on Christ alone. So it's saying, I can't do this and I need Jesus. You cannot turn from a sin, this sin specifically, because you've hardened your heart so fully and so decisively that conviction and repentance are impossible. So you've hardened your heart so much that you have no desire to repent over. So you see how it can't be forgiven? Because only sins that are repented of can be forgiven. Only when we run to Jesus and recognize, I can't do this, I can't be right before God without Him, can I be forgiven. But if I have rejected the very one that can forgive me, how could I ever be forgiven if I'm not going to repent? Remember, sin, it can't be forgiven if we're not repenting. We see this in Mark. We see this in chapter 1. We see this in chapter 4. We see this in chapter 6. Jesus himself said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's a whole lot easier to know those who haven't committed this sin than those who have committed this sin. You, you know you haven't committed blasphemy against the Spirit if you feel guilty over sin. Or if you're broken over your sin. Or you're ashamed of your sin or convicted of your sin. Or you even fear that you've committed this sin. You haven't committed it. If you want to repent, you haven't committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Even if you feel condemned by your sin, you haven't committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's easy, kind of easier to identify what hasn't happened than that actually has. Someone who has committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not know or care because they've completely rejected the truth. Their heart is so hard, so stubborn, and so prideful that there isn't even a consideration that, that sin, that this particular sin or any sin, could actually be a problem for them. That's horribly frightening. To be in a place where you don't think sin is your problem at all. And when you've seen how to be rescued and you know that it's good and right and you reject it anyway, that's a scary place to be in. It's an extremely scary place to be in. So Jesus is warning these religious leaders. He's giving them a warning. You're in grave danger because... the. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin. And that's, that's what they were coming close to. We don't know. But he was saying that this is reality. This is possible for you. Because you're saying that what am I am doing is of the devil when you know it's not. And while it's really important for us to understand what Jesus is talking about, we can actually miss something even greater by being consumed by this unpardonable, unpardonable it's hard to say, unpardonable sin. We can, we can be kind of consumed by that part of it, and we missed what's the amazing verse that comes before it. I mean, let's look back at my, my first point. Did you forget what it was? Because I almost did with that explanation. So my first point is that 
the family of God believes that Jesus has bound Satan and offers forgiveness of sin. That's the first point. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So in this parable, Satan's the strong man. And Jesus has bound him. He has bound Satan. He has no power. He not only binds him, but he's plundering his house. All that Satan thought was his dominion, his purview, his authority is being completely ransacked by Jesus. This is not talking about land or wealth. This is talking about people. And so what Jesus is doing is he's going through the house of Satan and he is rescuing those enslaved by sin. And Satan can do nothing about it. Because his house is being ransacked by the Lord of glory. The family of God believes that Jesus has bound Satan, bound evil. You see, we skip down and we focus, like I said, on verse 29, this unpardonable sin. But verse 28 should blow our minds. Look at verse 28. Truly, this is Jesus speaking, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, all sins will be forgiven. We like to think about this one sin that's not going to be forgiven, that honestly most people don't commit. And we forget all sin can be forgiven because of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. That's why it's good news. All sin can be forgiven. We are sinners here, all of us. We're blasphemers, all of us. We need forgiveness. And if you're in the family of God, we believe that Jesus offers forgiveness. That is a response of the true family of God to the person and work of Jesus. You're a sinner, friend. You're a sinner. And while verse 29 tells us that there is an eternal sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, the reality is that apart from Christ, all our sins on this earth deserve hell. All of them. So if you don't repent from your sin, you're in the same place of judgment as the person that commits sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As a friend put it once, because of your sin, when you clock out of the factory of this life, you drop dead. You put your card in and you drop dead because that's the wage that you've earned because of your sin. But in Christ, there's eternal life in this free gift. So apart from Christ, all sin should frighten us. Apart from Christ, sin's your master and hell is your destination. But in the family of God, sin has no power because all sins will be forgiven. This really should be our focus when we look at this text. And not distracted by this unpardonable sin, but the reality that in the grace of God, all of our sin can be forgiven. And so in this Mark and Sandwich, we've, we've dealt with the filling. The family of God believe Jesus forgives sin. Let's look at the bread. So we've got the filling, let's look at the bread. So point two, 
The family of God rejects our own will and does the will of God. Mark is making an important point with this sandwich. There were those who were knowingly, decisively rejecting Jesus, but there were also those who were ignorantly rejecting Jesus. His family thinks he's mental. They want to seize him and basically protect him from himself. That's what they want to do. They want to impose their will on God's will. You may say you are in the family of God, but whose will are you doing? Whose will are you doing? How do you, how do you decide where you move to? What determines what job you take? How do you make the decision to show up here on a Sunday morning or to be here on a Friday night? What do you talk about? What do you listen to? How do you spend your time? You see, the implications of bending your will to another's are extraordinary, and they're life-changing. When we put our will aside and we do the will of God. But how do we know we're doing the will of God? How do we know that these family members weren't doing the will of God? Well, they're trying to stop him from what, he do, what Jesus came to do. It's like in chapter 8, which we'll get to eventually, of Mark. When Jesus reveals that he, he, his will is to die and then rise again, the disciples are confused. Pe what Peter wants to do is, you know, he's going to take Jesus aside, and apparently he's going to try to talk some sense into Jesus. You can imagine what the conversation would be. You know, Jesus... This talk of you dying, you know, it might be sensational and all. We kind of got a good thing going. We're fully funded. I thought you were going to take care of the Romans. What does Jesus respond? He says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter was trying to impose his will on the will of God. Anything contrary to the will of God is fleshly and satanic. That is why Jesus' earthly family is guilty right here of rejecting. They're, they're rejecting him. They're not rejecting their own will. The religious leaders were not rejecting their own will. The family of God rejects their will and does the will of God. Look at verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brother. He looks around and he sees those who are truly with him like we talked about last week and he declares them family. But why does he declare them family? What about his biological family? His earthly family, the family he was born into? Well, he says, whoever does the will of God, they're my brother and my sister and my mother. Well, again, what's the will of God? What is the will of God? That's a big question. How can you be assured today that you're doing the will of God. Is it because you're here? Is it because you try not to curse or use the Lord's name in vain? Is it because you listen to the right music? Maybe you obey your parents. Maybe you submit to your elders. But really, anybody can do that. Anybody can pretend to be in the family of God and do those things. Jesus clearly says that the family of God does the will of God. But what is that? Well, if you turn to John 6, so just a couple books to the right, John 6, verse 25. 
we get some more clarity. Remember, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's just a great uh, tool to think about. How do we know what's going on in other places of the Bible? We look at other places in the Bible. The Bible helps explain the Bible. And here in John 6, we have this scene. When they found him on the other side of the sea, speaking of Jesus, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. <laughs> Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. The work of God, the thing we must do, the will of God for your life is to believe in the Him whom God has sent. The family of God rejects their own will and does the will of God. We reject the idea that we're in control. We reject the idea of self-autonomy. We reject the idea of moral relativity. We reject the idea that we can make God in our image. We, we reject the idea that we define marriage and sexuality. We reject any notion that we are at the center of anything. The family of God does the will of God. We believe in Him whom God has sent. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that no one comes to the Father except through Him. We believe that there is one mediator, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and we believe that we must be born again. This is what the family of God believes. This is the will of God for his family. You see, Jesus turns everything upside down. What the world finds important is no longer important. What the world sees as valuable is really worthless. What the world sees as crazy and mental, like Jesus' earthly family, is actually the most life-giving, sane, and restorative experience possible. Jesus' earthly family thought he was mad. The religious leaders thought he was of the devil. Do you see that both are blasphemy? One is an eternal sin. The other can be repented of. We know that that can be repented of because some of his family actually believe in him. His mother and at least one of his brothers, they do submit to his will. If you're resisting the will of God this morning by not trusting that Jesus is the only good news in the world, you stand condemned. And if you know that this is true and reject it anyways, you're in very real danger of never being able to repent of that. Ever. So what's the rescue from this danger? Confess your sinful heart. Repent. Believe that Christ will rescue you. That He will turn the light on and it will actually help you and bring you to the end of the tunnel. 
believer, we too must realize that we're blasphemers. And we can still blaspheme today. When we resist the will of God, we insult the name of Christ who actually died us, died to free us to obey that very will. <laughs> That's how messed up we are. The answer for us? Confess your sin. Reject your own will. Repent and believe that Christ is transforming you. And that he looks at you and he says, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Why would we hold on to anything else as more valuable than the welcoming arms of Jesus? Why would we do that? That's insanity. That's actually the insanity that we want to avoid by believing. Do the will of God by believing there is forgiveness of sin in Christ. Jesus has bound the enemy. He's bound. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Thank you. There is forgiveness of all sin and blasphemies that we utter can be forgiven. Pray for that person here that has yet to repent. For that person here that, that might know these things to be true, but doesn't want to repent anyways. Father, would you, by your grace, draw them to yourself? For believers here, would we be reminded of our need for Christ, and how willing he is, how excited he is, how it thrills his soul when we turn to him for forgiveness. Help us do the will of God by believing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.